Let's turn now to uh, God's Word and to John chapter 20. We're going to be looking at the first 18 verses uh, together. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I told the story of someone coming fresh to the account of the crucifixion. She'd never come across it before and she'd been reading through Mark's Gospel and meeting with a pastor. He was the one telling the story. Um, and as they had gone back from meeting the pastor, they were to read on. And she read on one evening. And as her husband went on to bed, she kept on reading and she came to the account of the crucifixion. And she woke her husband with her loud, uncontrollable sobbing. And he came downstairs and said, Sweetie, what's the matter? They killed him. They killed him. She cried out. And he had no clue. Was it someday on television? Was it a news event? What had happened? And she explained between gulps of, of air that the people had killed Jesus. And I commented, wouldn't it be wonderful to come so fresh to this story ourselves? But I didn't finish the story. The pastor went on to, to, to say how they kept on reading. They read through the end of Mark chapter 15 and on into chapter 16. And he said this kitty jumped up when they came to verse 6 and she danced around the room shouting loudly, He's alive! He's alive! I knew it! He's alive! He said, the three of us met for lunch the next Thursday and when I arrived, Kitty saw me and she jumped up and she gave me this great hug and she exclaimed, He's alive! He's alive! He's alive! In shock, he says, we sat down and they told me the story about the effect of the death of Jesus and his resurrection, the effect it had on them. Incredible. Wouldn't it be lovely just to, to, for it to be that fresh to us every time? We're so used to the resurrection being, as it were, the tagged on happy ending to the story of Jesus. But it is an astonishing moment. I had a similar moment of surprise with a Muslim man once as we were looking at the account of Jesus' life, and I was explaining the resurrection to him, and he said, so you're telling me that Jesus is going to rise one day from the dead? And he was amazed. I looked at him and said, no. I'm telling you that he has already risen from the dead. It's already happened. And he was astonished. It is an incredible truth and it's one on which the, the whole of Christianity hangs. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 17, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. In verse 19, he says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. We stake our life on an empty tomb. And John takes us to this moment and he presents us with not one, but three accounts of different appearances of the risen Jesus of Nazareth. There's the account of Mary of Magdala. There's the appearance to ten of the disciples. And then there's the appearance to Thomas. And in chapter 20 and in verse 30, John writes, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, these particularly the 
the resurrection appearance of it, also including the other seven great signs that John recounts. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here's the key. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. By believing that you may have life in his name. This is recorded so that it might have an impact on you, not just for a little while, but for eternity, that you would have eternal life through him. And so John brings his witnesses. He lines up Mary, then he brings the disciples, then he brings Thomas, doubting, sceptical Thomas, to testify to us that Jesus is who he claims to be, so that you and I might believe. And so let's come to the first of these accounts this week. We'll come to the others in the coming weeks. And John, as it were, gives so much detail to the, the account of Mary. It's as if he wants us to see it through the eyes of Mary. And there's four things I want us to see this morning. First of all, there's Mary's commitment. Mary's commitment. In the previous section, John highlighted the commitment of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Both these men were stepping forward. They had been in the shadows. They had been secret believers. And now they were stepping forward. And their commitment was admirable because all seemed lost. But Mary's commitment hadn't been like that. It had been in the open all along. But as we read chapter 20, John shines the spotlight on Mary so that we can see the, the commitment of Mary. The other woman, uh, there were other women who had gone to the tomb with her. In fact, if you read all four accounts of the resurrection and you try to put it together in your head, it becomes more and more confusing. It seems as if they, they're contradicting each other. If you read Matthew's account, there's Mary Magdalene and the other Mary go to the tomb. And an angel comes and rolls away the stone and the angel tells them to tell the disciples. And en route, Jesus appears to the woman. In Mark's account, there's Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome. And they're wondering who will roll away the stone and they find the stone has been rolled away. And there's an angel, a young man in dazzling white is there. And they go away and at that point they tell no one. And then we've got Luke's account. There's Mary Magdalene again and there's Joanna and there's Mary, the mother of James. And there's other women, an interesting indicator that not everyone has been telling us all who went there. There were other women. The stone is rolled away. Two angels are present. And the woman run to tell the disciples and we're told Peter runs to the tomb. And here in John, John hones in on Mary Magdalene. She's named. Clearly there's other women because in verse 2 he records her as saying, they have taken the Lord and we, we don't know where they've put him. She goes and tells Peter and John, and Peter and John run to the tomb. And then they go in, and then they go back, and Mary stays, and, and Mary sees two angels, and Jesus appears and speaks to her. You could nearly get dizzy trying to put it all together. How many trips were there to the tomb? How many people were there there? How many angels? Who all did Jesus appear to? But you know, all the pieces can be pieced together. No one gospel has all the jigsaw pieces. But all the pieces from all four gospels do actually fit. 
they come together. You know, sometimes when you're doing a jigsaw and you're looking at a piece and you're pretty certain this piece can't belong to this jigsaw. And then when you've the whole thing done, the piece that you had actually set to the side thinking it didn't fit, it's not at the side anymore. And you look along and there it is. It did fit after all. And the whole account, the four accounts of the resurrection come at it and they tell the story from different angles. And even that telling of the story from different angles has a ring of truth about it. And law professors and cold case detectives and crime journalists, investigative journalists, have looked at this, investigated it, and they've just been convinced by it that this is true. And they've come and put their faith in Jesus Christ. I have their books sitting on my shelves. But John, writing so much after Matthew, Mark and Luke, is writing at a vantage point that allows him to come at things from an angle the others haven't come from. We've seen this before. He often puts things in that the others have left out. And he often leaves things out that they've already told us about. And although all four Gospels mention Mary from Magdala at the tomb, John spends a lot of time on her. Why does he do that? She's the first person Jesus appears to. He'll appear to the other woman as well. But before that, I think one of the things that we're to see is Mary's commitment to Jesus. We've read about her several times in chapter 19. She is at the cross. And she is at the tomb to see where Jesus is laid. There's been much speculation around Mary from Magdala. Some of it quite unsavoury, perhaps unfair and unjust. But what we do know is simply what scripture tells us, that she had seven demons cast out of her. We read that in Luke chapter 8, verse 2 and 3. What a terrible and terrifying experience. Her life must have been up to the point she met Jesus. Hard to imagine how dark, how bleak, how catastrophic, how despairing it must have been. And she's so thankful and so transformed that she follows Jesus on his mobile ministry for two out of the three years, it would seem, of that period of his ministry, his public ministry, and we read that she had supported him out of her own pocket. And she had been at the cross. We read that uh, in John, we read it earlier, and we read in Mark 15 that she had seen where he was buried. And now she's one of the first to come to the tomb, and it speaks of her commitment to the one who had done so much for her. He had released her from her terrible existence, a prisoner of seven demons ruining her life, etching misery into the fibre of her being. And now she's been set free. Her soul, as it were, released from the, the chains that bound it, released and, and free to flourish and blossom. And her gratitude knows no bounds. And she loves much because she has received so much. Doesn't she stand as a challenge to every person who has been rescued by Jesus Christ. Our captivity to sin and Satan may not have been as visceral an experience as Mary's. But nonetheless, 
we have equally been set free. And we know something that Mary didn't quite know yet. That Jesus' death was the means of her being set free. Yes, he had cast out the demons from her previously and he had made her heart new. But all of that was conditional upon what he would do to redeem her at the cross. She would find that out. But we know that now. We know that what he did at the cross was to set both Mary of Magdala and to set us free. And so if she was grateful at that stage that he had done so much for, how much more grateful we should be when we realise that by his death he has done the same for us. The old writer J.C. Ryle asks a great question. How is it that many who profess and call themselves Christians do so little for the Saviour whose name they bear? It's a question we all need to ask ourselves because our own faith can rise and fall. Our, our commitment to our Saviour can, can rise and fall, can ebb away and it can flow. Ryle's answer is this. These questions admit of only one answer. It is a low sense of debt and obligation to Christ. A low sense of our debt and obligation to Christ. And then he says this, let us pray daily that we may see the sinfulness of sin and the amazing grace of Christ more clearly and distinctly. Mary was committed much because she was aware of how much Christ had done for her. So do we, do you need to stop and think again of how much Christ has done for you? Let us stand in front of the cross and see what he's done. Let us stand in front of the mirror and see what we've been forgiven. Maybe for some of you, that's where you need to start. To stand in front of the mirror and to, to see yourself as God sees you and to see that you're still counted guilty, that you're still actually a prisoner, a prisoner to yourself, a prisoner to your sin, a prisoner to your guilt, even a prisoner, as it were, of Satan. And to come to Christ. And to stand in front of the cross and say, would you set me free? Would you cut the chains that are binding me and release me too? Mary's commitment. Uh, secondly, Mary's sorrow. Mary's sorrow. Mary arrives at the tomb and the, the stone is removed and she sees that it's empty and she runs for Peter and John. They have taken who? Maybe robbers? Maybe the religious authorities? And Peter and John run and John arrives first and he looks into the tomb and he, he sees the, the cloth that was wrapped around Jesus. It's wrapped around his body. It's lying there. Well, that's telling. What robbers would have taken the time to unwrap the corpse? And why on earth would they do that? So that's telling that it's still there. And Peter arrives and typical Peter, he doesn't hesitate. He just plows straight on in. He sees the linen cloth lying there. And then he sees the, the cloth that had been around Jesus' head. And it's not tossed aside, but it's sitting neatly folded. What odd OCD burglars. 
You see the importance of these details? Even those details flag up for us. This is no grave robbery. This is not that the body has been stolen by someone, even the religious authorities. They wouldn't have done that. They wouldn't want to have touched a corpse. It was bad enough touching a wrapped up one, but to touch a corpse at Passover time? John steps into the, the tomb then, and he looks, and we're told by John that he saw and believed. I don't know that he's saying that he understood fully everything that had happened, but he gets that something incredible has happened. He sees the, the linen strips and the, the linen cloth, and there's something has happened. He hasn't figured it all out yet. He writes in verse 9 that they still not, did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise, or better translated, must, must rise from the dead. They hadn't all the, the pieces together in their own minds, but John knew something had happened. And Peter and John return home pondering it. But Mary hasn't grasped that something wonderful has happened. She is inconsolable. She remains weeping. And the word used means loud, uncontrollable wailing. She's convinced that someone has taken Christ's body. She's distraught that her beloved Jesus, his body would be treated with disrespect. She wants it back to treat it with honour and dignity. It's admirable, but it's also misguided. She's so completely caught up in the predicament that she's not able to see clearly what's going on. She's so thrown by the circumstances that she's missing the indicators that things are different. The tomb is empty on the third day. What about the predictions Jesus had made that he would rise on the third day? The bandages are left behind. The cloth is folded up. And then she looks into the tomb and and this time she sees two angels seated where Jesus' body had been. One writer makes a lovely thought-provoking comment drawing a parallel between these two angels sitting where Jesus' body had been and the two cherubim that sat the mercy seat in the temple, the place where the blood of the sacrifice was. I don't think Mary would have got that symbolism, but stop and think about that this week. And they ask her, why are you weeping? The angels aren't weeping, and they want to know why she's weeping. Another indicator. And I'm not wanting to be hard on Mary. She's so caught up in the problem, in her grief. But that's the problem. She's so caught up in it that she can't see what God is doing. And it culminates in this humorous moment. Jesus is standing there and she asks Jesus where Jesus is, where they've put Jesus. And don't we learn that we can have a lot of needless sorrow when we forget the promises that God has made? Don't we do that too? We find ourselves upset. We find ourselves grieving. We find ourselves in turmoil. We find ourselves anxious because we've forgotten the promises God has made. And we learn that we can be so caught up in, in one thing that we miss what God is doing 
that shows us that he is in control and things aren't like we think they are. And we learn that sometimes it's good that God doesn't give us what we want. Mary wanted Jesus' remains so that she could treat them with honour. That was her deepest wish. But God's plan was richer and better than she could ever have imagined in her distress. Doesn't that help us? Doesn't that help us? We don't always know what to ask for. We sometimes want the wrong things and God doesn't give us what we want because he always has something better for his people. How often these things are true of us. Needless sorrow, preoccupation with a problem such that we miss what God is actually doing. We ask for the wrong things. And all the while God has something better in store. And Mary's confusion can be our confusion in life at God's ways. Because we haven't grasped that the resurrection changes everything. Not just for Mary, but for us. Mary's sorrow. Let's come thirdly to Mary's certainty. Mary's certainty. Into Mary's confined, confused universe comes a voice. It's a voice that she's already heard. It had addressed her a moment previously. Woman, why are you weeping? But now one word is said. Mary. Was it the voice that she recognised? Was it the tone? Or was it her name? Who knows her name here? She turns and there he is. He is alive and he's standing in front of her. Can, can you imagine it? She had been at the cross. She had seen the state of his physical body. She had been there when he shouted out, it is finished, when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, when he had breathed his last, when his head had fallen onto his chest and hung limp and lifeless. She'd been there when the spear had pierced his side and blood and water had come out. She'd been there when Joseph of Arimathea had brought him down from the cross. She'd been there as he took him into the tomb. And now, now Jesus is standing in front of her and he's just said her name. What a thing. And Mary is the first person to see the risen Jesus. And oh, what certainty she has. And what could be said against this eyewitness? She's not hoping against hope that Jesus is alive. She's not deluded. She's certainly not hallucinating. She was so convinced of the opposite view, that when Jesus first spoke, she thought that the person standing in front of her was the gardener. He has to break through her doubts. And what certainty this moment gives to you and me, as with the other appearances. They're not expecting to see Jesus. They're not hallucinating. He was and is alive. And if he rose from the dead, that underlines the truth of everything else in this book. Everything in it is proved true. Jesus is who he says he is. Death is defeated. Sin is paid for. Jesus is God. 
He came the first time. He rose from the dead. He will come again. He will make everything new. Certainty. Maybe you're exploring Christianity. You're wondering, is it true? Well, here is the anchor point of certainty. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you to investigate it, to think about it, and to see how it changes everything. Perhaps, even as a Christian, some of you have doubts at times about the truth of it all. That comes to all of us, me included. Where do I go to? A moment like this, the resurrection. In fact, you could go to one word. One word. Mary. That one word. How it opened her eyes, how it convinced her of what she couldn't have been convinced of even by the appearance of two angels. Jesus had risen. And, you know, we can take this moment and apply it wider. It's not just about the certainty of the resurrection. It's about the certainty of Jesus' personal care for you. See how tender and gentle Jesus is with her in her sorrow, even in unnecessary sorrow. He says her name. He breaks through her sadness and her, her doubts. You know, as you stand caught up in your circumstances, maybe beginning to doubt God's hand in all of the complexities of your life and all of the, the things that have come and that trouble you, maybe doubting that hope could come into the darkness or the discouragement that perhaps you're facing, hear Jesus say, your name. Hear him say your name the way he said Mary. He speaks to you. There's something wonderfully personal about Jesus here as he addresses Mary by name. And that's the sort of saviour he is. He hasn't changed. Perhaps the risen Lord is standing before you today and saying your name. Perhaps he's asking you that question. He asked Mary, why are you weeping? Why are you worried? Why are you down? Why are you anxious? We might think, well, what sort of a question is that? Isn't it obvious? Look, this is going on and that's going on. And I don't know how this will turn out. And Jesus gently says, slow down. Hold on. The tomb is empty because I have risen and I rule over all things. Now tell me, why are you weeping? Why are you worried? Why are you anxious? The resurrection changes everything, not just in terms of salvation history, but in terms of your daily story. Our Jesus is on the throne. The tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. Why are we weeping? Why are we worried? Maybe this morning you're not yet a Christian and you're in a place where you've seen the facts about Jesus but you're not yet trusting in them and trusting in him. And it's not simply about being acquainted with the facts. Mary could see the empty tomb and she saw the angels but it was a personal meeting with Jesus that changed it all for her. Whom are you seeking? Jesus asked. And that's what you need. That'll not be a physical meeting like hers but a, a meeting no less real, a meeting with Jesus. You need to come to him and acknowledge 
that he is who he says he is and that you are who he says you are, a lost sheep, a rebellious son or daughter, someone in need of rescue and forgiveness. And he's speaking to you today as surely as he said, Mary. He's calling you to lift your eyes from this life and to look to him. Perhaps you find a heaviness about life, even a sadness. Maybe the places where you'd put your hopes and dreams have died and Jesus speaks to you now and calls you by name. Go to him and you will find everything changes. You need to seek the risen, exalted Jesus Christ. And when you meet with him, sorrow and grief and guilt and shame are all turned to joy. Mary's certainty can be your certainty. And then lastly, and briefly, Mary's commission. Mary's commission, one last thing to note. Mary turns to Jesus and she says, Rabboni, teacher. And she, she clings on to him. And the, the phrase is in the present tense, do not keep on clinging to me, as if she says, I'm not letting go of you. And she expects Jesus to pick up where he left off, to be Rabboni, to be teacher. But Jesus hasn't been resurrected to be teacher. He's not going to wander Galilee's dusty roads anymore. She and the disciples will have to live without his physical presence, but he will look after them and provide for them from beside his Father. He is ascending to the Father, he says, but, but not yet. And that seems to be the, the impact of what he tells Mary to tell the disciples. And it's lovely, go and tell my brothers. What a lovely term. It's the first time Jesus calls the disciples my brothers. They had denied him. They had deserted him. And how does Jesus respond? He doesn't call them my disciples or those fickle men. He says my brothers. The tenderest term he's, he's used for them yet. And then he speaks of my father and your father, my God and your God. Yes, Jesus' relationship is a, of a different kind with the father. But it's not different in depth. It's not different in depth. He is a natural born son. We are adopted children of the Father, but the love is no less. He is our, his Father and our Father, his God and our God. There is an equality. My Father and your Father. A closeness of relationship that we're brought into. And Mary is commissioned by Jesus to be the first messenger of this good news that Jesus is alive and that he has this tender relationship with his people and that they have this wondrous relationship with his father and she is sent to broadcast it the first one commissioned to do so and her privilege is our privilege those who've met the risen Christ are commissioned to take this good news to others good news that death has been defeated good news that sins can be forgiven good news because there's always hope and yes there are circumstances where it is hard for us to speak about Jesus to people. But here at the very bottom of it, there is a joy that death is defeated, that freedom is ours, that forgiveness is ours, that the risen Jesus reigns from the throne over the whole universe for the good of his people. What a message to have, to be commissioned to take into a world of uncertainty. 
and where the disciples were in gloom and despair, Mary walks in and announces, I have seen the Lord. And everything changes. That's the message that you and I are commissioned to take into our world of uncertainty and gloom and foreboding. It's the only thing that can change the world. And what a time to be living in. A time when hope is needed and answers about life and death are lacking. And we say the resurrection is real. Life after death is real. Jesus is alive. That changes everything. Mary's commitment should be our commitment. And yes, often in this life, Mary's needless sorrow is our needless sorrow. But Mary's certainty is also our certainty. And Mary's commission is our commission. What a difference the resurrection makes. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we come to you thanking you for this astonishing moment and this wondrous truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How we praise you that he has defeated Satan, sin, death, the grave. We praise you and worship you for this. And we pray that it would have an impact on our lives, that we would be marked by hope and expectation, that we would not be people who have a needless sorrow about us, and that we would be people who are marked by a commitment to Jesus, who has done so much for us, and who is going to do so much, and who is doing so much now from beside the Father. And Father, we pray for maybe people watching, uh, certainly our, our family, our friends, our loved ones, our neighbours, the people, Donegal around us here, who don't yet know Jesus, the risen Jesus, personally. Lord, we pray that they would come to know him personally. They would hear his voice summoning them by name today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.